Thanks for listening. Join us now for Perry and Shauna Replay from 89.3 Moody Radio. Rita Schulte is our guest today. She's a licensed professional counselor who specializes in the treatment of mental health disorders. And she's got her own radio show, Heartline Radio, where she answers some pretty difficult mental health questions and educates listeners. She's the author of several books, including Surviving Suicide Loss, Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. And her experience with suicide is not just that of a clinician. She lost her own husband to suicide. My daughter has lost a couple of friends to suicide within the last year, and we just went to one of the funerals on Saturday. It's most painful for the families. So just in whatever way you want to, just share the story of what birthed this book. Well, going through a tragedy like this, I mean, Mike was my high school sweetheart. We had an amazing love story. He was Superman, really. I mean, he was very charismatic very ministry oriented. We were in ministry for years in different types of ministry, very active in pro-life. He was uh, on the board of a crisis pregnancy center for about 13 years, leader in the community, the whole nine yards. And to watch this happen to him in a few short months was absolutely devastating, horrifying, all of it. it. It was just inconceivable that Mike Schulte, that this could have happened. And so I guess my heart is to write a book that will give people a roadmap in terms of how to deal with this. So I think I bring a dual awareness, both as a clinician and as a suicide loss survivor to the table, which I think could be very helpful for people. I mean, obviously, I didn't walk through this as a clinician. I walked through it as a wife. Yeah. And there's a scripture in Luke where Uh, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn, strengthen your brothers. I mean, I believe Satan was truly trying to sift me as wheat through this trial. And the good news was Jesus was always at the right hand of the Father interceding for me. And when I turn back, when I've healed, I can do something redemptive to strengthen my brothers. And that was the goal. That's beautiful. Dr. Rita Schulte, Surviving Suicide Loss, Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. It's from Moody Publishers. And I just love this, this idea, this very powerful idea of taking the great pain of our lives and using it for the good of God's kingdom. And I think of Second Corinthians chapter one, verse three, it says, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. That's what I hear Rita saying, even from the loss of her husband to suicide. It was, I think, in 2013, she's using this in a redemptive way to help those who are going through the same thing or have gone through the same thing. And, you know, in scripture, Jesus said to us in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So we all have places in our life where we need God's comfort and we have received God's comfort. And then we become those who pass it on Mm -hmm. to other people in need of comfort, conduits, if you will, of who God is and what he brings in comfort to the people that are within our reach. Yeah. 
Psalm 94, 19, in the multitude of my anxieties, your comforts delight my soul. And then we get to pass them on. Educate us a little bit, as this is your area of expertise. Why would we not use the term committed suicide? So that's become a a big thing nowadays. I think it's, uh, we're real careful about our language, right, in in many venues, I think, today. And so I think the term committed suicide, even though it may seem innocuous, it's actually laden with blame, stigma, even sin. It's damaging for many people because it evokes associations that this person committed a crime or committed Mm -hmm. some unpardonable sin. So that's laden with stigma. And it makes us think about something morally reprehensible and illegal, actually. It also ignores the fact that suicide is often the consequence of an unaddressed mental health issue, like depression or severe anxiety or some kind of mental condition. And it should be regarded in the same way as any physical health condition. So we wouldn't say someone committed a heart attack. Instead, you might hear somebody say they died from a heart attack. And so dying by suicide is the same. When we attach the word committed, it just discriminates against those who lost their battle against a a real disease. And we want to put that out there today, that mental health issues are every bit as real as cancer or heart disease or anything else. And so we're trying to eliminate negative stereotypes with it. I had a friend once that I was meeting with for coffee and he was going through a divorce and it seemed like everything was okay. And then I found out he he had taken his life. Mm. Um, And I went to the funeral and his dad said to me, I just want you to know, and there were a lot of people, you know, he had a great support group and I was sort of on the periphery of that support group. But he said to me, I just want you to know it wasn't anything that you did that caused the suicide. And I think that's the first thing, you know, from what I understand, your mind goes to what could I have done? It, it had to have been my fault. I could have done more. Oh, absolutely, Perry. That's I was drowning in that mm. because. I was the counselor, right? And I couldn't even stop my own husband from taking his life. And so that was a huge, huge piece for me. The truth was, and this was only probably a couple of years later, that I was able to embrace the idea that suicide, suicidal ideation, all of that was not even in my wheelhouse, right? I was treating eating disorders and anxiety disorders. And so I was way out of my league with this. I didn't know what to do. And so that was another impetus for writing the book. I wanted to give other people a roadmap so that they would have specific things that they could do, specific signs that they would see. But in terms of the guilt and the shame, you're going to be left with a lot of whys and a lot of what ifs. And that's just a normal part of this. The trick is you got to be able to forgive yourself for the things that you believe that you did or didn't do, because there's no guarantee that if you would have done something different, the outcome would have been different. And so in the book, I outlined this little story that I heard. It was a true story. It was in a pamphlet, a little book that I got from one of the suicide associations. And it talked about two moms, both had daughters that were 
the same age, both struggle from clinical depression. Mother A puts her daughter in a treatment facility because she believes that's going to be the best course of action to help her daughter. Her daughter takes her life in the treatment facility. Mm-hmm. Mother B decides, no, I, I just can't put her in a treatment facility. That would just destroy her. Well, her daughter ended up taking her life as well. So both mothers were blaming themselves and guilt-ridden for the very thing the other mother had actually done. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what the outcome would have been, right? I mean, I don't know what the outcome would have been if I had come back with Mike on the plane that day, but I'll carry that for the rest of my life. I just had to learn to live with that and to forgive myself because what I was able to do was come to the point where I realized that being human means being subject to limitations. And what I did in the course of action that I took was as I stand before God, the very best things I knew to do to try to help my husband. And so forgiving ourselves is a big piece of this because it will swallow you alive to hold on to those toxic beliefs. Yeah. And you really need help in that. You can't do it alone. Absolutely. And so the book is just an adjunct. I mean, I suggest People get into therapy. I got into therapy right away. At least as a counselor, I knew the things that I needed to do to try to begin this healing process. And everybody's different. Like, there's no set formula for every person because every person is unique and, and different. And it's just being responsive to how we're being led. But my heart for folks is don't let the stigma of what has happened limit your help-seeking behavior. Research shows that 35% of people will not reach out for help and they don't want to talk about the loss because of stigma. I had a situation a few years back where I got a phone call. My husband was made aware that our neighbor's sister who was pregnant had just taken her life and her sister was just about to find out. And so he called me and just said, go to her house now. I hung up the phone, ran over there as I was running across the street. I heard this just blood curdling scream, ran in the house and she was on the floor and I just wrapped my arms around her. In that moment, I wanted with everything in me to do, say, be helpful and had had no tools. All I could do was just get on the floor with her and wrap my arms around her. How do we come alongside someone who's experiencing the grief of the loss of a suicide? That was beautiful what you did. That was beautiful because you can't fix it. As much as you want to fix it, you can't fix it. And so when someone is entering into that kind of darkness, that dark night of the soul, walking alongside could look exactly like what you did. Wrap your arms around the person. I had people that sat and cried with me. I had people who sat and listened to me for days, weeks, months, years, right? And Mm -hmm. I still have a few key people that will listen to me even today if I have a bad day or if I get triggered by something. And so I think it can be something as simple as a touch, your presence, just sitting with the person, not expecting uh, your jovial, happy-go-lucky friend to be back in two months, three months, six months, maybe even a year. It might look like practical helps where I'm just going to come over with a meal. I'm not going to call you and say, hey, can I make a meal for you? Or let me know when you need help. You're just going to show up. Mm. So I had people taking me to counseling appointments. I mean, I was pretty immobilized the first few months. And so I couldn't even drive. 
And so friends and family would literally take me to appointments, go with me, sit with me. And so those things were invaluable to get me through those first few months. If you feel like you're going down for the last time in life and you see no way out, you say no way through, you see no way ahead, you have checked in at just the right time because we've got some words of hope for you. We've got Rita Schulte. She's a licensed clinical psychologist. She has suffered the loss of her own husband to suicide and she knows despair and she knows hope. And she's written this book, Surviving Suicide Loss, Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. It's possible that we have a listener listening to the show right now who who has suicidal thoughts and you have the opportunity in their private moment while they're listening to the radio to speak directly to their heart. What would you say to them right now? Never give up. Never give up. There's hope if you get help. Whatever problem you're struggling with, it's not hopeless. It's not insurmountable. See a therapist who can work through some of these drivers, these problems that you believe are insurmountable or hopeless, and just give it a try. So Rita, what drives a person to want to take their lives? What should we look for? Because we want to come alongside that person and provide them some help. So, so what drives a person? People having an ability to solve problems, intense emotional dysregulation, reasons for dying. Because these folks are believing certain things, maybe lies about why they should no longer live. Maybe it's something they did that they have struggled with or just who they are. Lack of reasons for living, loneliness, depression, social isolation. I mean, look what's happened with the pandemic. The suicide rate is skyrocketing, and especially with the pandemic, because people are lonely, people are disconnected, and they're depressed. Secondary drivers would include things like financial distress. Look at what's happened with COVID. People have lost their jobs, lost their businesses. Their whole lives have fallen apart. Then there's rupture and attachment bonds, key primary relationships. My wife's left me because I've you know, lost my business. My wife's divorcing me. An illness has occurred. Profound accident has occurred that's taken my loved one from me. A lack of belonging. Those are big drivers for somebody seeing suicide as a viable option. And then, you know, we have the desire to die. Well, what's going to give somebody the desire to die? A perceived sense of burdensomeness and a thwarted sense of belonging. And this isn't just, oh, I feel like I kind of am left out. This is a loneliness that drills down on the soul. Like I have no one to turn to, right? Mm -hmm. I am a burden to my loved one because I'm depressed all the time. And so if you see these risk factors present in someone you love, you need to get them help. If someone's talking about suicide, if they have a plan, if they have chronic insomnia, Agitation, marked social withdrawal, hopelessness, reckless behavior, paranoia. That's a huge one. My husband was increasingly more and more paranoid as those months went on. And so if those symptoms are present and if they're present for long enough, someone can actually consider suicide as a viable option. Okay, so 
somebody's listening right now and they're thinking of someone in their life and they've just checked off everything, every single thing on the list that you've mentioned about the one they love. How do they get them help? Maybe they don't want to go into treatment. I mean, you recognize all this stuff. So how do we get our friends, our loved ones help? Well, that's what my husband did. I mean, he didn't want to get help and he didn't want to get help till it was almost too late. I mean, I think he did it for me. So that was, I was a protective factor, what I call protective factors, something that motivates the client to live. And so, you know, me and my kids, Mike wouldn't comply with treatment. He wouldn't take the medication when he finally did go. Uh, and, and not to blame him. I mean, he, he hated the way the medication made him feel. He didn't think he was gonna get better. So what do we do? Great question. We try the best we can to encourage our loved one to get help. We go with them. I mean, I went with him to his appointments at the psychiatrist. I went with him uh, to the emergency room. I was supposed to go with him to the treatment facility. He was going to fly down there on Tuesday. I was going to make sure that it was a good fit for him and fly down. And I told him I'd stay with him as long as we needed to until he got better. But you can't make someone want to get better you have to realize that the pain that is tearing at these folks' soul is so great that they feel like they cannot go on. And so you try to instill hope. You try to help them as best as you can. But at the end of the day, they've got to decide about it, right? They've got to want to try something. And so that's what I love about the CAMS model because you're creating a collaborative treatment with this person, letting this person know that they're not alone. Because what, what did I say? One of the biggest things is loneliness and disconnection, right? Perceived sense of burdensomeness. They feel like they're in it alone. So if you can continue to walk alongside and instill that hope that, hey, I'm with you and together we are going to solve some of these drivers that make you feel like you have no other options because you do have options. So would you be willing to try this? in lieu of taking your life, right? You can always take your life, but would you be willing to try this? And we we continue to hold out hope and buy time that maybe if we can solve some of these drivers, these these things that seem insurmountable, that this person is going to regain a sense of hope. That's Dr. Rita Schulte, lost her husband to suicide. She's written this book, Surviving Suicide Loss. You know, it is really, really hard to walk alongside someone who who's in despair. And I know this from personal experience, and I've walked with someone like that for a long, long time. And there's not a formula. Mm-hmm. It's it's an art. It's not a science. And, and here's what I would say. Get a gazillion people praying yeah. for you and praying for that person who's in despair. I mean... Literally a gazillion, how many, however many that is, get that many people praying for that person and just listen to that person, validate their feelings and just say, you know what? I'm not going anywhere. I've got your back. I believe in you. I believe that there will be a light again. I, I can see why, why you would think there won't be, but I believe there will be a light again. And there really is a a ministry of presence. You know, we've been talking with Dr. Rita about it today, but Dr. Deb Gorton said the same thing, like show up, 
mm-hmm. just show up. And and what I heard from both conversations too is just that, um, you know, rather than saying, "What can I do? How can I help? Can I bring you a meal?" Just show up, show up, and go for a walk every day, or show up and you know, take them out to ice cream, just show up and be present. There isn't anything that we can say or do that's going to magically fix the circumstances, but we can be with them in it and just say, yeah, I'm not going away. I'm here. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening to Perry and Shauna Replay. To learn more, text us at 800-968-8930. That's 800-968-8930. 